If you uh, need a Bible, they're on either side of the sound booth. Uh, But beginning with verse 11, here's what uh, we read. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So this is Jesus uh, getting ready to uh, 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 talk. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your uh, mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, Take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Okay. Well, have you noticed that we are in the middle of a presidential election year? (laughs) Have you noticed that? And uh, the the campaign for the highest office in the land is uh, kind of reaching its uh, conclusion. Last couple of frantic months until I believe November 6th is election day. Is that right? Anybody know? November 6th? Yeah. Yeah? Okay. And so the past couple of weeks, we've seen the two conventions of the uh, political parties and, and uh, the presentation of their presidential candidates and all that goes along with, uh, with those conventions. You know, the extensive news coverage, the, the soaring speeches, the excited crowds, the, the protesters here and there. Uh, one of the things I always note is the, the speakers that get the time slots when nobody's paying attention. Uh, have, have you noticed those? You know, they're up there talking in the crowds. There's just a murmur coming from the crowd because no one's listening to them. And I always feel so sorry for those people because I know how they feel. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, it's, it's just an awful thing. And so I feel very bad for them. And, of course, the seemingly endless analysis of the political talking classes as well as uh, bloggers and, and Facebook posters that many of you probably uh, are aware of. Of the many thoughts that I have when observing these uh, political campaigns, uh, here's one of the most uh, prevalent. I often find myself feeling really bad for the candidates. I, I do. I feel very bad for them. But both of them. 
and, and, and all candidates, actually. Uh, you know, like all of you, I, I have my preferences, but I find myself being very nonpartisan in feeling bad for political candidates. And, and here's why I feel bad for them. It's centered on this issue. They have so many people pulling them in so many different directions that will never be happy with them unless the candidate agrees with them on everything. And even the people who are supposed to be their friends and their own political parties easily become angry with them for the slightest departure from their own viewpoints. Again, it is something I can relate to. It reminds me of pastors a little bit. Not here, but in other churches. I feel bad for them every time somebody asks them a question like this. What are you going to do for me? And then somebody with a completely different point of view says, what are you going to do for me? It seems to get elected. They have to work really hard to give proper respect to everybody's concern, to promise to work for everyone's cause. They have to consider the positions of the unions. They have to consider the positions of the pro-business organizations. They have to consider what the retired folks think, what the students think, what the banking industry thinks, what the nonprofit sector thinks, what the soccer moms think. And they have to agree as much as possible with every constituency that wants something from them, even when those constituencies are at odds with each other. If you don't take anything else from the sermon today, take this. Be a little more gracious toward your candidates. They have got a lot of people pulling them in a lot of different directions. And they have to, to some extent, curry favor with all of these different interests in order to get elected. And it just makes me feel bad for them. It really does. Uh, here's what I dream of happening just, just once. It will never happen. But I dream of this happening. And that is when somebody stands up at a town hall meeting and very angrily asks, what are you going to do for me? And it's some obscure concern that they've expressed that the candidate would look right at them and say, nothing. Next question. <laughs> That's my dream. That's my dream. I would switch my own preferences if one of the candidates would just say that. I, I, would, I would be happy to do that because someone needs to say that. <laughs> But they have to curry favor. They have to get the approval of enough people in order to have the chance to govern. And this is the process that we put all of our political candidates through in our representative republic. You know, our elections are, are really, at this point, years-long interviews in front of 300 million people, each with their own separate agenda for the interview. And the candidates better answer right to everything of all, every question of all 300 million people, or they're not going to get our support. This is what we are conditioned to expect, to require, before we allow someone to lead us. 
We put them through the ringer. We make them work really hard for our endorsement, to, to gain our approval, to gain our willingness to come under their leadership. You say, well, what's that have to do with the parable, Brian? Well, it's, it's this. As I, as I consider this parable from Luke 19 this week, this teaching of Jesus, these thoughts about our political candidates came to me, and it occurred to me that many people approach Jesus in the same way they approach a political candidate. They, they evaluate Jesus in the same way they evaluate a candidate for president of the United States. They say things like this, he needs to clearly articulate what's in it for me before I will allow him to have any authority in my life. He, he needs to state his case, his case clearly and concisely if he wants my support. And once I give him my support, I'm going to be watching him very closely. And if he says anything that I don't like after I've given my support, or if I find a position that he holds that I didn't realize beforehand that he holds, and I don't like it, then I am going to pull my support from him. It's not surprising that we approach Jesus this way with the way our particular culture functions, it's just what people seem to do. But here's something that this parable makes very clear to us. Jesus is not a political candidate, and he is not seeking our vote. He's not seeking your vote. He's not concerned with our affirmation of his policies. He's not trying to curry our favor by making promises based on our self-interested demands. Yes, he wants you to consider him and he wants you to yield to his leadership of your, uh, 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 of your life. He, he, he will woo you, so to speak. He'll, he'll, he'll appeal to you gently, but, but not in a way where he needs your approval in order to gain authority. He doesn't need your vote. He doesn't need your support in order to have the authority to rule. Your support or lack of support doesn't change anything about his rule, about his authority. Because he is not a politician hoping that you'll empower him. He is the king with ultimate authority, whether you agree with it or not, whether you like it or not, whether you submit to it or not. Jesus is the king. Yes, he's savior, but he is the savior king. And this parable drives that point home. And it's an important point as we consider uh, the meaning of the parable, what Jesus wants us to understand from hearing it. The text began this way. He went to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So Jesus is uh, quickly approaching Jerusalem where he's going to be crucified for the sins of the world. But the people think he is going to Jerusalem to establish an earthly kingdom right now. That's what they think he's up to. 
And so Jesus needs to set the record straight, to to change their expectations a little bit, to try to help them understand that the kingdom isn't yet coming in, in its fullness the way that they imagined it. That the man of noble birth is going to be going away for a while, but it's going to return later to fully establish his kingdom. The parable makes it very clear that though the king is going to be away for a while, they are still subject to his authority. They remain accountable to him for their actions. You should make no mistake about it that Jesus intended them to understand himself as being the man of noble birth, the king in the parable, and to understand themselves as being in the role of the servants in the parable. And this teaching was not just for them, but for us. And so this is the same way that we need to approach this parable, understanding Jesus as the man of noble birth, the king, and ourselves as the servants. The two major themes of this parable are authority and accountability. That Jesus is the absolute authority over all people and that all people stand accountable before him. And so I first want us to consider the authority of Jesus. The parable references the man of noble birth who goes to a distant country uh, to be appointed king and then returned. And and then returned. Jesus ascended to heaven, died for the sins of man, uh, uh, having died for the sins of mankind and having resurrected again. He went to heaven, he ascended to heaven, having fulfilled the mission of Savior. And when he returns the next time, when he comes again, it will be as conquering king. Conquering king. The subjects in the parable recognize that the man of noble birth will return as their king. And so the parable lets us know that the man of noble birth did return as king. And when he did, he went about judging the faithfulness of the servants during his absence. He is referred to as master. Again, not a position that uh, one attains through, uh, through voting. As the man of noble birth, the king returns and judges the faithfulness of his servants during his absence. The parable is meant to communicate that Jesus will return. And when he returns, he will judge the faithfulness of his subjects between his first, during the time between his first coming and his second coming. Now, if you have been uh, paying attention to, to all that we've been covering in the book of Luke, you will uh, be, be uh, understanding that this theme is coming up again and again and again. It's just like Jesus makes this point repeatedly. And here it is. There is a God, and every single one of us will give an account of ourselves to him. I mean, it's been weeks in a row that this, that this uh, theme has been showing up. We will all be judged by him. We don't get a vote on whether we like that or not. We don't get to take a, a, an opinion poll. And present it to God. Hey, you know, God, we, we pulled all the citizens of the United States and, and by, by a margin of 100 to 0, they are all opposed to being judged by you. And so, you know, with that strong of support, God, you, you, you're going to have to change your position. I mean, it, it's not the way it works. We don't get to take that kind of poll. We don't, we don't get to appeal for God to change his mind. 
There is a God. And every single one of us are going to be judged by him. And I want us to notice something from the parable. The standards of judgment are determined by the judge, not by the subjects, not by the servants. When the unfaithful servant protests, the master isn't persuaded. The master isn't impressed. God is God. We are not. God has given all authority in heaven and earth to Jesus, and the standards of judgment are his. They are not ours. We don't, we don't set the rules. We don't determine the standards. He does. And so this parable teaches the absolute authority of King Jesus over everyone and everything. Everyone is subject to his authority. Everyone is accountable to him. And so for the next few minutes, I want us to focus on the accountability of people to King Jesus. Now, keep in mind, there is no question among Bible scholars that the point of this parable is to teach the authority of Jesus and the accountability of the entire world to him. Verse 13 tells us of the king, so he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. So what we understand from this is that Jesus requires his servants to faithfully administer his interest until he returns. God has given each one of us unique gifts and with those gifts, responsibility. The responsibility to work for his interest, to fulfill his purposes until he returns. The king said, put this to work until I come back. He was expecting a return on his investment. He was expecting them to do something with what he had entrusted to them. And God expects us to put the gifts he's given us to good use, to faithfully administer the resources that he has placed within the oversight of each one of us. And there's coming a day when he'll return and we will give an account of whether or not we were faithful with the resources that he entrusted to us. And so I want us to consider the accountability of three groups that we see in the parable, uh, but I'm going to approach them in a little different order than what they appear. I want us to first consider the accountability of the unfaithful servant. This is really the, the, the main thrust of the parable. At least most people feel that it is. This is the primary message that Jesus was delivering to his hearers that day and to us today. Verse 20. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in, reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? And then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten. So the king entrusted this servant with a mina, which, by the way, is a, uh, about three months of wages. And if you pronounce it differently, uh, that's fine. Uh, I had a little debate with Stan today. What's the proper pronunciation of this word? And we settled on mina. So if you read somewhere it's pronounced mina or something else, 
Good for you. Pronounce it however you want. <laughs> so, so he gave them three months' wages and expected him to put it to work. But the servant is fearful of the king, and so, so he doesn't do anything to risk the money. Instead, he simply holds on to what he was entrusted with. And the king condemns this action and takes away what he had given. Jesus is teaching that he does not take it lightly when his servants take his resources, do nothing with them, and then expect him to be satisfied that they have simply maintained what they were given. Our gifts of time, talent, money are all from God. You don't have anything that's yours. Your next breath is not yours. We don't own anything. We think we own stuff. We think we own all kinds of stuff. But we don't own anything. Everything we have is from God. It is His resource. And He has entrusted His resources to us to use for His purposes until Christ returns. And when we do nothing with what he's entrusted to us, Jesus is teaching that judgment will be difficult for us and we will suffer loss. Why is this attitude of the servant so troubling to the king? And why are such attitudes so troubling to Jesus when they are held by his servants, by his disciples? I think it's primarily because the unfruitful servant is revealed as not really knowing the master, not really knowing the king. And unfruitful Christians, I mean, this is sobering to think about. Unfruitful Christians are exposed as not really knowing Jesus. The servant says, I was afraid of you. Because you're a hard man. To which the king replied, You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man? That's the tone you need to hear in that. Oh, you knew, did you, that I'm a hard man? And so the king says, I will judge you by your own words. If I'm a hard man, why can you put my money on deposit so that I could have collected it with interest? Here's what the king in the parable is really saying. I'm not really a hard man. But if you thought I was a hard man, how much more you should have done something with the stuff I gave you. The action or lack of action revealed that the servant didn't really know the master, whose actions in the rest of the parable reveal that he's not a hard man at all. And because he did not really know him, he didn't respect him, and he was not loyal to him. Jesus is saying that people who take his resources and do nothing with them don't really know him. They don't properly respect him. They don't trust him. And so they aren't loyal to him. Oh, it's true the servant had connection with the master, some type of connection. They, they knew each other to some extent, but there was no real relationship with the master. And this is how many people are with Jesus. They have a connection with him, but not an actual 
relationship with him. They look like they belong to Jesus. They might even be part of a church community such as this one. But they have no meaningful relationship. And this is another thing that has come up time after time after time in the book of Luke. I think it must be an important message that Jesus wants us to hear. It must be that this is a big problem with human beings. And and so it just is revisited over and over and over. Have we truly trusted God and entered into a relationship with Him? Or are we more just casual acquaintances? Here's one way to tell. Are we being faithful at putting to work what he's entrusted us with, what he's given us? If not, the parable would encourage us to consider if maybe we're connected in some sense, but do we really know him? Do we really care enough about him to use his stuff for his purposes? Have we really walked through the door of faith? Or have we just thought that proximity, being around the things of God, was enough? The king takes away the mina from the unfaithful servant and gave it to the servant who had the most. Like the parable, Jesus is teaching that unfaithful servants will suffer loss. 1 Corinthians 3.12 says this, If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Jesus is teaching that faithfulness is rewarded while unfaithful disciples are going to suffer loss. Friends, we do not want to be the disciples, the servants who are saved only as one escaping through the flames. That's not what you want to be. That's not what I want to be. Jesus is appealing here with a a negative example. He's appealing for faithfulness until he returns. So how are you doing? How are you doing with faithfulness? with what is entrusted to you. The parable call, calls on us to consider that question, to seriously consider that question. Now let's look at another negative example in the parable. Let's consider the accountability of those who completely reject the king. Verse 14 tells the subjects of the king who hated the king and sent a delegation after him to go to the distant country and appeal that he not be made king over them. But he was still made king in spite of their objections. And then verse 27 shows how the king dealt with those who completely rejected his rule. Here's what it says. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Harsh, 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 harsh. 
And here's what we should take from this parable. Rejection of the king did not nullify the authority of the king. They rejected, but he was still king. They, they tried to say he, he, he doesn't have authority over us, but he had authority over them. Their lives were held in his hand. Likewise, rejection of Jesus does not nullify his authority. And friends, if you're here today and you have never received Christ as your Savior, I, I don't say this angrily. If this comes off angry, I've said it wrong, I don't say it angrily. But I appeal to you that rejecting Jesus does not nullify his authority in your life. And so if you have never received him, the, the, the parable appeals to you to receive him. Because every person on earth, man, woman, boy, girl, is accountable before Jesus, the Savior King, whether they want to be or not. Their rejection doesn't change his authority. They will answer to him one way or another. And if they come to the day of judgment having rejected his rule, the Bible is so clear in teaching that the wages of that rebellion, the wages of that sin, await them. And what are those wages? It's not a popular verse. But the wages of that rebellion, according to Romans 6.23, death. Separation from God forever. Living forever with a complete absence of God, complete absence of good, You say, but it's not fair. I shouldn't be accountable to someone I never agreed to be accountable to. I shouldn't have to yield to someone I don't want to yield to. I, I don't know what to tell you. You are. You are. God's not seeking your affirmation of his authority. He is requiring you to accept Christ as your Savior. And he's requiring you to surrender to Christ as your Lord. He requires us to surrender to his authority. These are sobering lessons from this parable things we have to consider. Now let's look at a positive example. Let's, let's uh, draw to a conclusion on a positive note. I want us to notice what we learn about the accountability of faithful servants. Look at verse 15. It says that the king returned home and sent for his servants he had given uh, money to in order to find out what they had gained with it. And then 16... The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Notice the response of the master. Well done, my good and faithful servant. And because it's not in me to be like overly excited when I say things, I'll draw attention to the fact that there's an exclamation mark at the end of that sentence. Well done, my good and faithful servant. 
because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. And then the second came, and it's the same thing. Sir, your mina has earned five more. Take charge of five cities. Notice how generous this master king judge is. You handled ten minas well, here's ten cities to oversee. You handled five minas well, here's five cities to oversee. Simply being faithful with the master's resources resulted in rewards that were completely out of proportion with the faithfulness that was given. Do you see that? I mean, we would have thought that the master would say something like this. You know what? You did well with 10 minus. Now let's see how you do with 20. Let's see how you do with 30. Let's see how you do with 50. But no, he says, take charge of 10 cities. This master was not a hard man. It's not hard at all. This master was very gracious, very generous. And the parable communicates to us that Jesus Christ is not a hard man. Our Savior, King, Judge is very gracious and he's very generous. He's very generous. Just a little bit of faithfulness to Jesus results in rewards that are completely out of proportion with the service that we render to him. The unfaithful servant was so wrong. The master was not a hard man. And we are wrong when we think that Jesus is like that. He's not. He is gracious to us. He is generous with us. The parable also makes it clear that if we'll simply be faithful to our master, there is no reason for us to fear judgment. No reason to fear judgment. The master in the parable excitedly commends his servants, well done, my good servant. And that's what awaits every single one of you here today who will simply allow the Holy Spirit to empower you to be faithful to Jesus. That's what awaits you. Well done. Good job, my faithful servant. Judgment for the faithful is a time of blessing, a time of affirmation, a time of rejoicing. The master is excited. He affirms the faithful servants and he blesses them with additional responsibilities. 1 Corinthians 4 5 is a verse that doesn't get quoted a lot, but it has a, a great line in it. It speaks of the judgment of faithful servants. Faithful servants of Christ, here's what it says about them. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Speaking of the day of judgment, at that time, faithful servants will receive their praise from God. Judgment for the faithful isn't to be dreaded. It is a time of commendation. It's something to look forward to. And finally, judgment for the faithful result in additional responsibilities. Now, Scripture doesn't give us enough to, to say a whole lot about this. But there is enough to nudge us toward the view that there are going to be rewards of additional responsibility 
for those who are faithful to Jesus. Exactly what that looks like, we can't be overly dogmatic about or even speculate too much about. Some believe that that's going to play itself out uh, in what's known as the the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand years where some people believe he's going to to rule on the earth. Uh, Others believe that those uh, responsibilities are going to play out in our eternal state. Uh, Those who maybe don't see a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth but believe we go immediately to our eternal state when Christ returns. So there's a, a lot of stuff we don't know about this. But there is good basis for believing that faithfulness results in additional responsibilities when Christ returns. And we certainly know that it's a principle that's at work really just in all of life, but it's at work in the church as well, that when we are faithful in small things now, we are rewarded now with additional responsibilities. So I want you to end with this encouragement. Our judge is gracious and generous. God's desire is to commend you on judgment day. God's desire is to affirm you. God's desire is to rejoice over you. God's desire is that your judgment would be a time for you to be rewarded. And here's the final thing that I want us to draw from this parable. Look at verse 15. He was made king and returned home. Jesus Christ came to earth the first time as our Savior. But friends, he is returning as our king. And here is what you can know beyond any shadow of a doubt. He will return. Jesus is going to return. We don't know when, but he will. Can I tell you that a lot of us feel that it may be soon. The king is coming. So what should we do? We should be faithful. Why don't you stand? Why don't you just uh, bow your heads and close your eyes. I just want to offer up a prayer for us today.